0: What may cost $32 trillion and not be there when you need it? You're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Saving. Dr. Saving is the university distinguished professor of economics and director of the Private Enterprise Research Center, both at Texas A&M University. Dr. Saving has been a trustee of the Social Security and Medicare Trust Funds since the year 2000. He is co-author of the book, The Diagnosis and Treatment of Medicare. Today we're discussing Medicare, how can we continue to pay for it, and what can be done to control the costs. Welcome, Dr. Saving. Thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Great to be here, Bill. In the report you co-authored, Medicare, Past, Present, and Future, it stated, on the supply side... The way healthcare is produced must change fundamentally, replacing cost increasing innovations with cost reducing ones. Give us your plan about how this can be done.
1: I think the first part, Bill, is to get the incentive structure to change dramatically, and that is that individuals should care about what healthcare costs. And as long as the individuals don't care what it costs, and the whole third party payment system is structured in a way that makes innovation cost increasing versus cost reducing, because that is where the innovators get returns on their innovation.
0: Now, some of the innovators are big business. They come out with the next greatest MRI machine or the PET scan or the spec scan. Is that have to be controlled as well?
1: I don't think you have to control it, I think, because we don't control it in any other industry. We don't control the computer industry. No one is arguing that the computer industry somehow has to be controlled so that the innovations will be cost-reducing. We know they are, as a matter of fact. And I think in those areas of medicine, where customers care what it costs... And that's LASIK surgery, for example, cosmetic surgery. Innovations in those industries have been quality improving and cost reducing. And I think it's the same thing that drives those industries. If we can change the system so that customers care what it costs, innovations will be directed toward making things less costly.
0: But it's only cost reducing because Medicare is not paying for it. There are plenty of expensive biotechnology drugs. I think they're now calling them Tier 4 drugs, which are extremely expensive. And going to say that's an elective or a cosmetic procedure and deny somebody the right to those medications?
1: I think that's the real hard part about any kind of reform that you're going to do in terms of making individuals care what things cost and how do you handle very what we might sometimes refer to as heroic. In this in case, these might be heroic pharmaceutical interventions, but we also do a lot of what we might refer to as heroic procedures for individuals. And the question is, what do you do about those heroic things? I think that they are not the primary cause of course of the huge change in the role that healthcare plays in the national economy.
0: What then is the real causes?
1: It's two things, of course. One of them has to do with demographics. And the fact that individuals are living longer, and that we're much wealthier than we were before, and you know historically, you have for thousands of years, buying an extra year of life has been something that's been very important, and you see it in Mephistopheles and all those things where they make deals with the devil to live longer, and I think that <laughs> <laughs> right? so, so it's important people want to live longer and they're willing to pay for it now. If somebody else is going to pay for it, then you really want to live longer, and I think that's really what's happened. Is we've designed a system in which the prices are fiction; these prices that the hospitals charge and people get these huge long bills, those are all fiction.
0: Oh, they certainly are. I'm a pediatrician. I can tell you, it's. You know, I feel like I go into uh, Office Max. You know, and the patients at the end of the bill, we say, "And you saved fifty percent." You know, because. There is no retail price anymore.
1: I think we can change that, but it's going to take a major change in the way, maybe in the way healthcare is even delivered. But you have to free up the system to work. As it has been freed up, really, in a lot of ophthalmologic things and and cosmetic surgery, it's freed up in the beginnings of Walmart establishing little mini clinics in which nurse practitioners really are there. These things are all cash operations. There's none of the things that you have to do in terms of all this reporting where you have to now, I'm sure, hire outside people to come in and do all that for you in a very different way than the way healthcare care was designed originally. And maybe we can go back to that. I think those are some of the things we can talk about.
0: You mentioned one of the factors was the demographics, aging population. The second factor driving the cost?
1: Is higher income. That is that we and our desire to maintain our quality of life and we're willing to pay for it. And we would be doing that even if Medicare wasn't paying for it. Now, it would look different. And what we did would look different than it does now. And with this whole notion that we discussed earlier about innovations, innovations would be trying to make these things less expensive and better than the way innovations now work with the current payment structure. And I think it's the payment structure that's causing the problem. And until we can change that, and we can change it, we're not going to succeed short of rationing in changing the share that healthcare is of the national economy.
0: Would something like a global budget on health care reduce Medicare's unfunded liability? Another proposal I heard thrown out was called budget-based capitation.
1: There's no question that if what you did was in a sense, if you had budget-based capitation, which is, remember, that's what a lot of the firms are doing. That's what General Motors has done. They've done that both for now salaried employees. They just did it for salaried employees. It's budget-based capitation, in a sense. And they've already done it for the union-based employees, because what they've done is say, here's what we're going to pay, and we're going to take all our current retired employees, and we're going to give them X dollars more per month. And that amount more is going to go up with the CPI, not with the cost of health care. So what they've done is to limit the health care they're going to provide for their retirees. We could do the same thing with Medicare. And what that really essentially is doing is saying that retired individuals are going to have to pay for a greater and greater share of their healthcare consumption as the years go on.
0: I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Saving, Distinguished Professor of Economics and Director of the Private Enterprise Research Center, both at Texas A&M University. Today we're discussing Medicare's unfunded liability and how to keep Medicare solvent. Are there some medically necessary cost reducing innovations that you can think of. In other words, replacing something that's high cost now with something lower cost. Do you have three or four ideas where you could say these are things that can be done? It's part of a basic package of health care that is necessary, but that can be done more efficiently or less expensively.
1: Well, now now you're getting out of my area, into your area of saying, okay, what are the options that we have? If you really had a market operating and individuals cared what it cost, the people in the medical profession would come up with those things, just as they have in cosmetic surgery and in ophthalmology. I think what you have to have is the innovations have to come from your side of the picture, but they have to be actually induced by individuals caring what these relative costs are to them. And I think that's what's going to happen. So I don't have a magic What you're looking for is the silver bullet. And the silver bullet doesn't exist at the moment. And the silver bullet has to be in the form of reforming the way we actually pay for health care. And we can do that, but it takes a very different structure than current Medicare is. And if we're going to go on and we should talk about what the implications are for the current system if if we don't do something.
0: Why don't we do that right now? What is the implications?
1: Let's imagine that what we as trustees in the 2008 trustees report forecast and what CBO has forecast, we could look at two different kinds of things. One of those, and remember the real unfunded liability, which you've talked about, really begins in 2011, because that's when the first of the baby boomers become eligible for Medicare. Mm -hmm. That's 2011. And the payroll tax, if we were going to do it all with payroll taxes, the payroll taxes are now about 14%. They would have to be 20% in just 12 years. They would be 25% in 22 years. They'd be 50%, according to CBO, by the end of 75 years. And if you can imagine, if half of your money, if your pay is going... Just to pay payroll taxes, just to pay Social Security and Medicare. And then you'd also have your federal income taxes. That's another 15%. So then you'd be 65% taxes. Then your state taxes would be getting you up to 75% of your income is taxed. No one's going to show up for work. And if nobody shows up for work, GDP will not grow the way we're forecasting it to grow. It can't happen. We'll be like the Soviet Union was, where the workers would say, We pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Now, on the other hand, that's letting the workers pay. We could do the same kind of thing because what we can do is we can let the elderly pay, which is something that would suggest we can let premiums try to pay for these deficits that are coming up. And right now, the elderly are paying something like $122 a month for premiums for Part B and Part D. Those premiums in 12 years would be over $400 a month in 2008 dollars. In 22 years, they'd be $900 a month. Can you imagine that? And in 75 years, they'd be $5,600 a month.
0: It sounds like really the only option is rationing, limiting care.
1: That certainly is an option that can work. We can limit care. And then how do you decide who gets care? And we know that's the way it's limited, say, in Canada, for example, where there are very few MRIs in the whole country something that John Stossel did not too long ago on ABC. He said that he showed a nice, beautiful clinic with an MRI, and you can get MRIs on demand. It turned out, of course, it only if you barked or meowed could you get an MRI on demand. <laughs> if you're an actual human, you can't. And they control all of that. Now, as we know, that they had a recent change in the Supreme Court in Quebec that said that this is unconstitutional in Canada, and so there are a number of private clinics now opening in Canada. But that just means that rationing, which they tried to work, isn't even working.
0: One of the areas that obviously is a great expense is the end-of-life care. Any thoughts about how, as an economist, how we should approach that?
1: Uh, yes, and when we say end-of-life care, you really mean heroic measures. And by that, by heroic, you're doing heroic things. In those, and you may be doing things that, that have a very low probability of success. Or they may you know already know the person's going to die. If you know the person's going to die anyway... Then you'd say that's wasted expense. But what you have to be very careful about is often when we do these heroic things, the people survive. Yeah, <laughs> and that's right. Yeah, that's the game. Is that we want them to survive. Yeah. And when you look at the data, you're only looking at the people who died. And you're not taking account of the fact that suppose half the people survived. Well, then it might be worth it. If none of them survive, it's clearly wasted money. And I think we have to be really careful when we look at this, I think. But clearly, a huge amount of the expense of Medicare comes in that last year of life. And we don't have the data yet to really be able to separate out the survivors from the dyers.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Thomas Saving for being my guest, and we've been discussing controlling Medicare's unfunded liability. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to listen to our on demand library at reachmd.com. Register with promo code radio to receive six months of free streaming audio. Please call us at 888 MDXM 157 with your comments or suggestions. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health. Hello, this is Dr. Martin Myers of National Network for Immunization Information. You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals.